And there's actually nothing wrong with us. You know, to me, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, what gets clumped into and labeled as perinatal mood disorders is a normal and healthy response to a dysfunctional way of life. So it's normal and healthy and functioning that we would feel depressed to be home alone with our children eight hours a day, five days a week or more. You know, it's normal to feel anxiety when we don't have any support outside of our nuclear family. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I'm your host, Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is episode 61. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Rochelle Garcia Saliga. I am having a hard time finding the words to express how profound I find this conversation, uh, not just between the two of us, but this larger cultural conversation about mothers, children, babies, postpartum, birth, and the wellness of all these things in relationship to the wellness of the entire culture, the entire human family, human village, <laughs> if we can even call it that, and um, and the wellness of the earth. So I'm really honored to have spoken to Rochelle and to share this with you today. I would personally request that you listen till the end. I think it just gets really powerful at the end. And um, yeah, as I was re-listening to it, I just was like, gosh, I hope people make it all the way because this is really where it all comes together and where like the most profound statements are being made. And um, just what comes up is what I think about every day and really the whole purpose of this podcast. So if you feel in alignment with this podcast, which you clearly do if you're here, I think that you will feel glad that you listened until the end. And I want to define postpartum here, the postpartum period. I do ask Rochelle this at the very end, but just to make clear from the very beginning there's no end point to postpartum. If you are raising a child, and even if you're not, as Rochelle defines it, even larger than raising a child, which you'll hear in the beginning here, you're never the same. You're never the same after you have carried a pregnancy for any length of time. And the the shocking life change that comes the day your child is born you don't go back to the way it was before. That's not reversible. So postpartum is for life. And I just want to lay that out at the very beginning here because we, and modern medicine defines it so narrowly in a way that really leads to further pathologizing that we talk about. Um, yeah, so this whole idea of the village, I just want to say that the it's episode 11 that of this podcast that I recorded I, about two years ago now. Um, and it was called Without a Village. And it was just me speaking about how hard mothering in our culture is. And that has been the second most downloaded episode 
of this podcast of all time. And the only reason it's not number one is because my guest in the most downloaded episode has a very large email list and, you know, sent out a newsletter about being interviewed on this podcast. So it got thousands of extra downloads that week. Um, and so if it weren't for that though, that would be the most downloaded podcast out of all the big names I've had. The fact that the audience of course has grown in the two years since then, you know, most of like the early episodes don't have nearly as many downloads as the later ones, even though I had some amazing guests such as Stephen Herod Buner and others in the beginning, that episode was so wildly popular because every mother can relate to it. And I'm sure it was just shared like crazy, you know, from woman to woman, mother to mother, parent to parent. However, people who are raising children are identifying, we're all going through the same thing. Um, So you might find some comfort and camaraderie and commiseration in that episode 11. And then also just a few days before Rochelle and I spoke, I did one of those kind of last minute heart share, big emotions spilling over Instagram posts. My Instagram is mythic medicine about this very thing that we ended up talking about, about again, the lack of a village and wanting to be in community and just how sad it is, how hard it is and how none of us fit into this culture we've created as Charles Eisenstein mentioned in the most recent episode. Um, so just, again, if you want some more like validation about how hard what we're doing is as mothers in this culture, that podcast episode, huge, or that, um, Instagram post, huge, huge response. So many comments, just, just like, yes, 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 me too. Thank you. It's good to know. It's not just me. How could we do it differently? You know, just this is just a conversation that we need to be having. So the photo is me standing in between two of my very good friends, and um, we're laughing. And it's a professional photograph taken at a farm at our friend's wedding in September. So you can find that if you want to go check that out. Um, God, I, I just, there's just, I could just talk forever about the things that we talked about today. And we'll certainly continue to talk about this, all these myriad subjects on this podcast um, and within the Medicine Stories Facebook group as well. So I don't really mention that so much anymore because I just don't want it to grow into too big of a group. Um, but a lot of the things that we talk about in this conversation are posted about in the Medicine Stories Facebook group that you can just find by searching there. So if you feel like you want to continue this conversation with other like-minded folks who also listen to this podcast, then please join us there and please answer the questions and, you know, say that you will abide by the rules because I don't even see requests if you don't do that. So please do that. If you'd like to be there, we'd love to have you there. (sighs) Okay. So Rochelle, aside from on top of, along with all the amazing, amazing things that she talks about um, on her Instagram page, which you should check out on her blog post, her downloadable ebook that you can find at innatetraditions.com. She also does trainings in innate postpartum care, both in person and online. And the online training is coming up. Registration closes on January 20th. And I know that many of you who are moved by this conversation today will want to be a part of it. 
So check that out. Hopefully you're listening to this before January 20th. Um, What she has written about this training is that ancient postpartum traditions throughout the world, while specific to the cultural context in which they come, all share deep common roots. These postpartum traditions all point to the importance of an extended resting period, warmth, specific foods, and body work after birth. Many of these traditions also teach that how a mother is cared for during the postpartum time will profoundly be reflected in her health through menopause and beyond. These commonalities of postpartum traditions throughout the world are not a coincidence. They are rooted in our physiologic design as humans. So you can go to innatetraditions.com to check that out, but... And if you would like to receive $100 off the online course tuition, you can go to the Medicine Stories Patreon page to find out how. Patreon.com slash Medicine Stories. And I am not putting this behind a paywall, even though it's only a $2 a month paywall for my lovely patrons. Thank you so much. Um... I just, this work is so dear to my heart, so deeply necessary for the healing of humanity and the planet. And I just, I want, I want it as accessible as possible. So the only limit is you need to do it before January 20th. Um, so go there, patreon.com slash medicine stories. And I will have a link within that post to Rochelle's website where you can learn more as well. Um, oh gosh, (laughs) again, again, I'm just finding myself like, I want to talk, I want to expand upon so much of what we talked about, um, but it's all here. It's all here in this conversation. So I'm just going to let you get into it. Thank you so much, Rochelle, for this deeply moving. I mean, you, you'll, we both cry and you will probably cry too. Maybe not you specifically, but many of you listening will be moved to tears the depth of this work and this calling and this reality, you know, both the sadness and the hardness and the overwhelm and the disconnect of the way we're living and how that specifically, especially affects families and young children and their parents raising them, but also the profound opportunity for healing and growth and stepping into our power and our calling and our work as people who are embodied on this planet at this time. Again, listen to the end. Thank you for being here and let's dive right into this powerful conversation. All right. Hi, Rochelle. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Hi, Amber. Thank you for having me here. Thank you so much for all the work you do. Uh, it's just, I'm so moved by it. Um, I was so just immediately just a huge yes when I read about your work, you know, like like yelling out loud, like, yes, yes. And I was even thinking right before we got on the call, like if if you, if all, you had been doing all of this when I was like in my early 20s, when I was in college and hating it, and I came upon your website, I would have like quit my life and moved to New Mexico. (laughs) Like, Just what can I do? How can I be a part of what you're doing? Because it so speaks to this primal 
need that we all have for connection and community and like really honoring women and mothers and babies and birth and the whole continuum. So thank you so much. And I suppose I'll just begin by inviting you to, you know, talk about your journey, like how you came to be doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you just for your appreciation and for feeling the feeling what it is that I'm doing, you know, Um, and how I came into this work is, you know, primarily through midwifery. In my early 20s, I did go to university and pretty much like right on the end of when I was finishing university <clears throat> is when I both came into midwifery and I was also adopted into a ceremonial way of life. My adopted, who became my adopted dad, his name was Canucus Durant Littlefish. And he was a roadman of the Native American church. And then through him, I ended up meeting my elder. Her name is Donna Maria Camps. And she's originally from Trinidad in South America. So my midwifery path um, really combined with my ceremonial work and ceremonial mentorship throughout my 20s. And I did a lot of my midwifery studies in Mexico, um, in birth centers and also in home birth. And then I worked with midwives in the United States as well. But throughout my 20s, it was birth and ceremony and mentorship. And then I became a mother. My daughter was born when I was 31. And at that juncture, um, I tried, well, not that I tried, I did go to birth. We went to about five births after my daughter was born. And I say we, because my husband would go to, because every midwife who has babies has to decide how to do it for themselves. But I knew that I didn't want to leave my baby to go be with other mothers and babies. So we all went together. And so like sometimes they would pitch a tent in someone's yard and sleep there. And my husband would run her into me when it was time to nurse, or I would run out to the tent if she was asleep and, or they would sleep in the car. And we did that for a little bit. And it was just so um, dysfunctional for our family. It was so hard on our family. It was so exhausting to me. You know, as a new mother, I feel like my nervous system was already fried from being on call as a new mom. And then layered with that was being on call as a midwife. My husband's from Mexico. And so um, we moved to the United States as a family in my third trimester of pregnancy. So when I first started doing midwifery, like on my own, it was in the context of this very small village where we lived in Mexico. And you didn't need to have cell phones. We didn't even have a phone in the house you know, and if someone needed me, they kind of knew my range of where to find me, you know, like we didn't have a car. So it was like, I'm either going to be at our home or in our garden or, you know, over here and, and they would find me. So it was like, it's a totally different um, relationship to midwifery that was, you know, and I feel like if we would have stayed living in Mexico, perhaps I would have continued on going to birth, but midwifery in the context of living in the United States with cell phones and with having to get into cars and having a newborn baby, it was for my system, it was too much. So for the first three and a half years of our daughter's life, I really stayed home. Um, And that's what I wanted to do. And it was fulfilling to me and good. And then when she was about three, three and a half, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go back out into the world. But how, you know, I didn't want to go back to birth. And so I had a whole sequence of events in my life um, 
that I received training in uterine massage and then intravaginal care. So from that, I ended up creating a whole, what I called holistic well woman care practice, like what well woman care should be. Um, it's very preventative in nature and then curative when need be, you know, so I had a practice and then from out of that practice really came this piece of how big postpartum care was lacking in the United States, you know, and what a void that was. And it came about because I lived in a really um, heavy midwifery community. We were living in Southern Oregon at the time. We lived in Ashland and there were so many midwives and so much awareness around home birth and so zero awareness about the postpartum time. And so I felt really pissed off about that. Like I run a lot of fire, you know, and, and from that fire, I was like, well, I need to do something about it. Cause I feel like when we have a big charge about something, it's actually the things that we have responsibility to. So, um, so I took up that responsibility and from that, I created this training program that now, you know, I'm going into five years teaching and it's just about remembering and aligning with our physiologic design, which is kind of foundational to our map to thriving health as humans. And just to like ground this in the really big picture too, you've written the dysfunction and disharmony within our human environments manifesting through the vulnerable bodies of postpartum women. You've written about that. I kind of cut that off. That's why that sentence sounded weird. Um, in fact, it is through the bodies of mothers that humanity is being alerted to the urgency of our collective need for change. So this is, I mean, of course, you're working with individual women, helping individual women with what's going on with them after bringing forth life. But also, this is so much bigger than just any individual woman. Oh, yeah. This is this is how the collective has pathologized um, motherhood, you know. So now, I mean, there's still so much association with the word postpartum that people think it's synonymous with a syndrome or with depression. And postpartum is a period of time after we carry life. So whether or not our pregnancy ends in a live birth or a stillbirth, or we have a miscarriage or we have an abortion, we are in a time of the postpartum period. And, and what is happening collectively, what has happened for a long time is there has been this pathologizing of really what are normal experiences of being mothers. And then, you know, what we've done as women, as mothers, is we've really um, assumed that pathology, like something is wrong with us. And there's actually nothing wrong with us. You know, to me, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, what gets clumped into and labeled as perinatal mood disorders is a normal and healthy response to a dysfunctional way of life. So it's normal and healthy and functioning that we would feel depressed to be home alone with our children eight hours a day, five days a week or more. You know, it's normal to feel anxiety when we don't have any support outside of our nuclear family. It's normal to feel um, psychotic, we could say, in terms of reality as it is and being mothers within the reality as it is. It's completely not normal. So to normalize that um, is actually insanity, you know, to normalize path, to normalize what's not normal is insanity. So it's like flipping our whole worldview of how we're relating to mothers, how we're relating to life, um, and also getting to the core of it that if we want to uh, create 
thriving life in our human community and on earth, then we have to begin to focus on the mothers. You know, if we're going to talk about the health of the future generations, we're going to talk about children's health. There's no way to talk about children's health or the health of the future generations without focusing on maternal health. Maternal health is foundational to all of humanity's health. So that is how I approach it all. Yeah, <laughs> it's that um, Krishnamurti quote, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Exactly. Of course, we're going to feel all those feelings and have all those physical symptoms during that period. I mean, this is so personal for me, as I'm sure it is mm -hmm. for every mother who's mm -hmm. listening, you know. Totally. Um, and you you write about in your um, free ebook that people should go download right away from innatetraditions.com. Um, mm -hmm. um, so just to bring in another piece of everything, you just talked about sleep. I could not believe reading in that, that studies suggest that mothers lose up to 700 hours of sleep in the first year postpartum. Right. And so I had a moment when my now three-year-old was seven months old where, yeah, I, I literally felt psychotic. I had never felt like totally. that before. And, like, I went to the knife drawer in the kitchen and got a knife out and was like, mm -hmm. I wasn't going to kill myself, but I wanted to hurt myself. I just mm -hmm. needed to, like, manifest the pain somehow, you know, of how totally. hard doing this thing was. And, I mean, that's just one tiny example of the millions of moments that mothers have. Totally. And, you know, the the bizarre thing is, is that there's like this lapse in our collective awareness, right? Like there's a lot of studies. I mean, I think in that booklet I talk about, you know, there's studies that have been done just on medical residents, right? So MDs who are doing their rounds and the effects of lack of sleep on medical residents. What are the effects of lack of sleep? Depression, anxiety, you know, the whole gamut of what gets classified as quote unquote mental disorders. And governments around the world use sleep deprivation as a form of torture. So it's like somehow we can't take this information that's really kind of out there and, and known and apply that to mothers. You know, it's, it is part of baby's physiologic design to need care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's normal. There is nothing wrong in there evolutionary design. And you don't but have a high needs baby if they need right. that. It's not a high needs baby. That's that's their baseline of normal. But what's not normal is that we're living in these nuclear family bubbles now. We're living in fractured communities and fractured ways of life that doesn't support our evolutionary needs, right? And so sleep deprivation is a normal part, we could say, of becoming a mother. And but when we're living in intact communities, we have other adults around to buffer that in that we can take naps, in that our nervous system can downregulate to be able to take naps because there's the presence of other adults that we trust around us. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's just that there is a lot of information out there that we can easily apply to the postpartum time for really simple understandings like that, like sleep. Mm -hmm. That phrase, nervous system downregulation, because what I have found is like, even when my little one, and she's still not sleeping great through the night right now, at over three years old, even when she is sleeping, my nervous system is still like, eh, but still is like she going like up any minute? Yeah. yeah, and then I'm not sleeping when she's sleeping. And it, yeah, that, because there's, I have my husband and, you know, my 13-year-old helps somewhat, but it's not living in a village. 
No, totally. So I love this um, phrase, re-villaging, that Mm -hmm. I've seen you share a lot about. And I mean, like, we can go so deep into the pathology, and that's useful. Mm -hmm. But you also offer so many solutions and resolutions. So what is re-villaging? Yeah, so re-villaging is a term that I had, like, read in a couple different articles in the past month, really. And I was like, you know, I don't know who came up with that term, but I've seen it out there a few times. And I really... You know, we like I the the women who have gone through my training, like we meet sometimes. We just had a couple kind of Zoom meetings in the past week, and I was like, "What do you all think about this term?" Because part of what happens when people go through my training, then they go out and they're um, they teach a community education series in their local community that is about what's happening in the postpartum time. So they're teaching it to mothers and families during pregnancy as preparation for the postpartum time. Um, so that's a big part of it. There's an education, there's like a postpartum care plan being formed, but there's also community being formed because the thing with postpartum care is that none of it can actually happen without community. Okay. Like it doesn't, you know, someone's like, what's the most important part of postpartum care? And I'm like community because nothing else can actually happen without community. So then that's where we're in the conundrum of what do most people not have? Community. So these classes that innate postpartum care providers are teaching are to do education, but also to help people either fortify or create community support so that if they didn't have community prior to arriving in this community education series, they leave this education series with community support for their postpartum time. So anyways, we do these calls and I asked everyone, what do you think about this word revillaging? Like, what do you think if we use this word revillaging to talk about what I've been calling revitalized community support? It's kind of like another way to say the same thing, but I feel like languaging is important. The words we use are important. And there's something about revillaging that's kind of like catching people's awareness in a different way than saying revitalized community support. So revillaging is this understanding that the most important medicine of our times in terms of everything that I learn, everything that I know now and everything that I keep learning, there is nothing more important than our social connections, than having social connections that make us feel good, that um, see us for who we really are, reflect back to us who we really are. It affects our physiology, actually. It affects our length of life. It affects the um, the health of our DNA, actually. So revillaging is based upon this concept. It's about that if we want to talk about health and wellness, as important to our health and wellness as the food we eat, as the water we drink, as the exercise we're getting, is social connections, which is revillaging. So the way that most of us are living, especially in the United States, is really in, you know, isolated nuclear family bubbles. And I know that so many of us feel this, you know, so many of us are like, oh, and, and I think for, you know, I just turned 40 and I feel like, especially for people who are in, in my generation, you know, I feel like a lot of us felt like we would raise our children within village settings. Like I kind of feel like that was my design, you know, And my daughter is now nine. We might have another baby, might not, I don't know. But like this idea of, um, I might not be raising my child within a village setting is like, I have to go through a grief about that, right? Because what I thought it would be is not. 
But then still moving forward, you know, in terms of how I reconcile that is like revillaging is still so important for every step of our life as humans. Revillaging is so important for elders. You know, one time my elder and I were having this conversation and I told her, you know, I feel like people talk about like life insurance. And I was like, I feel like the best life insurance that an elder could have is like the kind of relationship that means so much. Um, that like, I want to support her and elders, you know, not just people who have grown older, but people who have grown older and harvested the wisdom of their lives have so much that younger generations need. The younger generations have the physical capacities that a lot of elders don't have. So there's an inherent reciprocity in these relationships that within revillaging would be intact. So I'm still like, I'm still on this and I I feel really determined to actually manifest village living like in my lifetime. I feel like it's very much so my dharma to to do this, to to recreate what all of us at one point in time had. Um, And I feel that there is, you know, then the question becomes like, well, what, why is it so challenging to manifest these realities on earth? Why is it if so many of us feel this and want this, what is standing in the way of this manifestation? And the deepest place that I've gone to so far with that is I feel that all of the movements, you know, from colonization to um, the inquisitions to what I call like death programming or death culture, these destructive ways that have really attempted to annihilate our traditional ways of life. The one of the most um, damaging, purposeful impacts that these movements have had is to create distrust and separation. Separation is a tool of colonizers. Okay. And I'm not just talking about the past 500 years, but all the ways that we have been um, separated from each other, indoctrinated by beliefs of separation, has created all these fractures that now we need to repair in order to be able to actually revillage. So it's, you know, relative to doing our work around racism and white supremacy, no matter what body we're in, you know, and those belief systems that we've all been fed, and then doing the work amongst women, right? So what's true and common for a lot of women is this distrust in terms of solid sisterly relationships. But we have to understand that within a historical context that that was, um, intentionally bred amongst us, right? Through through the inquisitions, through the burning of the medicine women, through the annihilation of women on this planet for the past 10 to 20,000 years. We're in this really big time of repair. And so we are having to recultivate um, trust in each other and unification. Unification is the key to our healing, but unification comes through uh, this massive internal healing work that we have to do. Oh God. <laughs> I'm watching your facial expressions. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> it's just, I mean, there's just, there's so much to so say much. and so much to talk about. And this, this, these exact things that you're talking about, it, it just, you know, just everything. <laughs> it's just like everything I've been reading and thinking and talking about lately is this, 
the same yeah. thing. You know, like even my last podcast guest, Charles Eisenstein, his all of his many books and his brilliant works, it all comes down to the difference between the story of separation that we've been handed down and that we're living in and the huh. story of interbeing that we are That's moving so And I haven't even read any of his books or any of that. So yep. totally. It's it, just like what's up in the collective yep. right now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh-huh. I've just personally been doing all this like sexual healing and like pussy healing and um, ancestral healing through my mother line. And it's all, it all comes back to like you were just speaking about, I mean, amongst other things, but relationships between women and like reweaving that trust. And, um, I feel like, you know, like, okay, so how do we move forward? Cause it is so hard. Like you were just saying, um, why is it so hard for us to live differently? It's so hard. Like when I was in my early 20s and when I had my oldest daughter at 25, I was just obsessed with the idea of village living. And I was, you know, researching where can we move and how are people doing this and how is it going to work? And then I just felt so crushed. Like it's not possible, you know, it's not possible for us. I'm not seeing anyone around me do it. Sure, there's like pockets out there, but they don't seem to fit for us or we can't afford to move or whatever it was. Um, it's so hard to do, but to me, it seems like one way to move forward is to, is for women to like join, to join, to rise up, to join. You've been seeing the Instagram stories and things I've been posting lately. You know that I've been talking about this. I don't feel like I'm articulating very well, but, and such a key aspect of that is through healing the pelvis and the mothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so tell me about this thing that you write about with the connection between pelvic health and mental health. So let me just see what thread I have to pull in here to yep, say whatever you want about yep. anything. <laughs> I, let me just say this one piece cause it's kind of lingering, um, which I feel, you know, that for people listening, you know, for you, you might already be in this, um, matrix of information and ideas and understandings, but for people who are listening, who this may be new to, I feel like the part of understanding our collective history is so important in our, in our healing, because we have to orient, right? There's this thing of how did we get to where we are? And so in order to understand how we got to where we are, we have to understand the history, because if we don't understand how we got to where we are, then we can't understand where we're going, you know? So just to name that part in regards to women, you know, it's, Uh, in terms of the healing amongst women and what has happened for women throughout the past, from my understandings of things, 10 to 20,000 years, it's that whatever the movement has been, you know, depending on where our ancestors come on this planet, come from, um, you know, let's say it's during the inquisitions in indigenous Europe and okay, you know, Rochelle, you're a healer. And so you must be working with the devil, right? You must be working with evil forces to be able to manifest this kind of healing. Wait, and not just working with, but having sex with is what the entire European witch hunts were about, having sexual relations with the devil. Yeah. And so they'll say, oh, but Amber, um, if you let us know who else Rochelle has been working with, we'll spare your life and the life of your family. And we'll actually help you move from this area so that you will not be hurt. And so it's branding through distrust. This was really intentionally cultivated and it still is, you know, and it's not just in this one area of indigenous Europe. I mean, this is, this is how it has functioned. So it's been, it's been like seeds um, 
planted of distrust for a really long time that we're repairing. So in terms of orienting of how did we get to where we are, this is how we've gotten to where we are. And so then in knowing that, then we can move forward. So then your question was pelvic health in relation to mental health. So this for me is just such a kind of a simple foundational question or understanding and it's that however we feel in our pelvises as women, we're going to feel in the rest of our lives. So if we feel great and healthy and connected and vibrant in our pelvis, then that's really going to be how we feel in the rest of our life. If we feel um, afraid or um, blocked or constricted in our pelvis, it's also going to be how we feel in the rest of our life. And there's also no way to separate pelvic health in that sense from what gets labeled as mental health. You know, like I am able to offer 38 continuing education units for my training to mental health providers throughout the United States, which is like something that I, that's like my target audience because mental health is so square, you know, in terms of how it's understood. So I really like working with mental health practitioners who are working with postpartum mothers and families to really broaden their understanding of what mental health even is. But if a woman, let's say, I mean, this because this conversation could be so big, right? But if a mother in the postpartum time is peeing or pooping in her pants involuntarily, of course, she's going to feel anxious or depressed or both. You know, you can't separate what's happening in our pelvis from how we're going to feel in our mind and how we're going to feel in our body, you know? So we can't compartmentalize out mental health. I mean, someone can spend 20 years in talk therapy and think that it's postpartum depression or that's how it gets labeled as. Maybe they just need to receive some intravaginal work and a uterine massage and then they're going to feel better because they're no longer going to be urinating or pooping in their pants. You know, I mean, there's just, it's kind of a crude example, but it's just to get people to understand that we can't compartmentalize any part of our body. It's all absolutely connected, you know? And in my experience working with women, like doing hands-on, hands-in care, we hold, um, trauma and big life experiences in our pelvis and it gets locked into our tissues actually. And when we're able to release that stored trauma from our tissues, it frees up our creative life potential to manifest our dreams, to do the work that we were put on earth to do, to have healthy functioning relationships and to sit in our power and feel comfortable sitting in our own power. I am currently reading Vagina, a new biography by Naomi Wolf, and she breaks down like the actual physiology of this with the pelvic nerve and how it's a direct, direct line to the brain. Um, and how, and there's just, I mean, of course it intuitively makes sense, but she really fleshes it out with all the science and all the history of how when we have trauma in that area, which almost all women in our culture do, and for sure mothers, um, it, yeah, it absolutely like it dims our light. It really does. And when that is healed, or when it's intact, like you said, like this creativity and this joy and this like abundance flows through us. Mm-hmm. And I've recently been doing um, getting pelvic work done, and mm-hmm. I it is so 
profound. I'm like, oh my God, the last 20 years I've spent like chasing all these healing modalities and all I needed was like someone to give loving and healing attention to my pelvis. I know. It's really amazing. It's really amazing. (laughs) It's so simple and it's so effective. I mean, that's why I (sighs) love that work because to me, it's like when we're working in the root of the female body, you're in the roots. So you, we can't, it's not really possible to bullshit around, right? You could bullshit your way through talk therapy. You can for 20 years. You You can even bullshit your way through massages and like neck adjustments, but you can't bullshit the root. No, you can't bullshit the root. And so to me, it's like we get into the root of our bodies. We get into the root of the matters of what's up and real for us. And then and then we can clear things out. I mean, like I've just witnessed what would be considered like miracles a lot in, in offering that work. Um, and it's not because I feel like my real gift is like, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm a body worker. You know how some people are like real body workers. I feel like my gift more is in holding space. So it's not really always about the technique as much as it is as holding safe, sacred space. And it's amazing what clears out of the body. There's like this healing resolution that comes that I've not ever witnessed anything like it outside of that work. Yeah. Yeah. During uh, my second session with her, I went into the deepest trance state where I was just being flooded with memories and images, both of my daughter's births, um, sexual experiences, all of the sexual trauma that I know of through my mother line, my mom, my grandma, and my great grandma. Um, oh my God, so much more. I, I journaled as soon as I got home because it was so profound. And and she wasn't like giving me prompts, verbal prompts or anything. It was all just what was flooding through me, you know? And I realized so clearly, so clearly that so much of the trauma that's embedded in me, because I have pretty little sexual trauma myself compared to most women in this culture. There's some, but it's not, it's not that huge or that bad really and yet it it lives in my pelvis as if it is Mm -hmm. and I know I know it's not mine I know that it's the collective and I know that it's ancestral Mm -hmm. oh god I'm just like shaking in a good way talking about this um and I know that this is also of course something that you are talking about and looking at is intergenerational trauma and um this blog post title you have clearing millennia of bad medicine through women's bodies Tell me about that. Well, you know, I, in my early twenties, no, all of my twenties, I was with my adopted dad, you know, and my adopted dad. So he is, he was, he passed away in 2012, but he was born on Leech Lake Reservation and he's Ojibwe, but him and his family were forced out of their homelands to the Chicago projects ghetto, you know, when he was like four or five. But his family is from the Medewiwin lineage. The Medewiwin, the Medei people are all the Northeastern tribes of North America. Um, It's the medicine people of all the Northeastern tribes. And they've always come together. And they've come together for the past 10,000 years in these lodges to exchange teachings. So that's the lineage he came from. So in my 20s, I was around him a lot, you know, in ceremony and in life and you know, you hear things like bad medicine and this person throws bad medicine and, and, you know, just narratives like that. And I was always like, well, what does that mean? And how does that work? And how does someone throw bad medicine? And is that real? And just questioning the things that I heard and the things that I was around. And, 
you know, where I've gotten to in my understandings of what that even mean, what that even means, bad medicine is bad medicine is, is thoughts. Bad medicine is the thoughts that we think about people because the thoughts generate energy and those create actual forms. And if someone has an opening, um, you can throw bad thoughts at people. You can throw bad medicine. And if you don't have an opening to receive that, then it can't actually affect you. But if you do have an opening, if you're vulnerable as a child, if it's your place of weakness as an adult, then those things can affect you. So in my work doing hands-on, hands-in work with women, the imagery that would come through to women, you know, like you're talking about the imagery you saw while you were receiving this work, would be things like um, daggers in their ovaries, Okay. So this is, you know, I, I would, I do prompt, I ask questions. I don't ever give answers, but it, it would be like, how does that feel? It's really somatic based. Where do you feel that in your body? I feel that right here. What does the feeling feel like? Is there a temperature to it? Is it hot? Is it cold? You know, like this and, oh, it feels prickly. Um, what are, what, is there anything more about the prickly? So I'm, I'm, holding space in that way, but just navigating into the sensation of the body for people to be able to harvest out of that bodily sensation. And in those experiences, you know, women are like, there's daggers in my ovary, you know, or there's little creepy men hanging out around my ovaries. I mean, a lot. This wasn't just like one or two times. This is like a lot of the time, this is what women are sourcing from their bodies, you know, and then you get into a, where does that come from? Well, that comes from, when I say thoughts, it's like belief systems. What are the belief systems that we have taken on because of our families, because of our respective lines, because of the collective, when we take on a belief system even if it's not something that we actually believe in, right? But it becomes part of us as children or it's like an unconscious thing we've adopted and it's not a belief system that's in service of life or health or, or wellness. Um, that's what I, that's what I feel were those daggers. That's what I feel were those little creepy men, you know, hanging out over women's ovaries inside their pelvises. And so I just guide women, right? How does that feel? It feels like this. Okay, it's daggers. Where does that come from? And they get answers. You know, it comes from this. And then how do we clear that from the body? We clear it from the body through the root, you know? And then it's anchoring in this this that was put on me is not actually mine. Okay, this comes from this place. And sometimes I don't even think it matters where it comes from. It just know we just know that we're not aligned with it and we want it out. And so then get it out and then anchor in what do you actually believe, you know? And so I, that's like a foundational question. What do we actually believe? Not what we've been told to believe, not what our parents told us to believe, not what our grandparents told us to believe, not what the collective tells us to believe, but what do we actually believe about life? What do we believe about our bodies? What do we believe? And so then we have to like define and differentiate for ourselves ourselves. And that's where we get the real power. You know, then it's like, then we're filled up with power and that vibrating, like pulsating life energy, because we're connecting with what's real and aligned um, with life for us, you know? So that all happens through the pelvis. I mean, that can happen in a lot of ways. You know, I feel like that's kind of like the root of my work. Like, you know, 
people can call themselves different things and like, okay, yes, my background is midwifery. I'm a midwife. Some people might say that they're an herbalist. I feel like I work with belief system medicine. That's like the foundation of what I do because what we believe is foundational to what is and what we're capable of birthing on this planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I okay. I'm gonna tell a little story. Um, in college, one time there was some a group of people put together this like display and they put it up on the quad there at UC Davis in the grass in the middle of all the buildings, you know, where everyone congregates at lunch and everything. And it was about rape and rape stories. And this was like in 2002 or three. So, you know, before me too, before we were all really talking about this and I walked around just read, I was like, Oh, what's this, you know? And within like a few minutes, I started to basically have a panic attack. And this is not something that had ever happened to me personally, you know, and I had to like leave early and drive home. And after reading that blog post that I just um, read the title of yesterday, I was just really like, like now I just have all this energy in my body and I was like shaking it out and shaking my hips. And I was like, yeah, like this, this embedded thing in my pelvis, in my womb, everywhere down there is like, it's it's patriarchy. It's a feeling of not being safe. I don't know if that really fits perfectly as a belief system, but really I feel like that's one thing that almost all girls in our culture are growing up with is like, it's not safe here. I am not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, like this culture wants to hurt me at my root. Um, and, you know, I know that you saw the stories I did last night about Instagram sexual predators coming after 11, 12, 13 year old girls. Like, like this is happening. All, hardcore, so much worse than I realized. I'll put a link to um, to the article that just came out about this, but that's embedding in those girls' pelvises when they are receiving those messages. You know, just these like sweet young girls who just want to connect with their friends on this Instagram app. So, oh my gosh, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna um, I'm just gonna read a little thing that you wrote about in this um, in that in that blog post as well. So you write that we have been controlled through our bodies as women for thousands and thousands of years. When we clear out all that is not ours from our bodies. So like me dancing around last night, shaking my head, be like, get out. You're not me. I want to fill that up with me, you know, and Mm -hmm. we anchor in the truth of our beings. We step into our power. And when we claim our power, we are healing the generations behind us who carried these burdens and traumas for so long. When we claim our power, we are healing the generations ahead of us whose paths will be cleared through our work. Mm-hmm. And you have a daughter. I mean, you you know the the weight <laughs> that we are carrying and trying to heal this right now. And it's just as real for the parents of sons, the healing work that they need to do. <sighs> yeah, it's no joke being a parent in the modern day world. No. I mean, no, I think about it every day. I'm like, holy hot damn. It is, it's a lot. It's a lot to be a parent in the modern world because it's like what parenthood represents in general, right? Layered with everything that we have to think about in the modern world. And I mean, what I can say is my husband and I, you know, you don't never know how you're going to be as a mom or dad before you're actually a mom or a dad. Like you have your hypothetical way of how you think you might be right before you have a child and then you have a child and you're like, Oh, and we're both <laughs> like very protective over our daughter. And I'm actually like really grateful that um, we're both like that because I can imagine in some other relationship dynamic and, you know, in another reality, like I could be thought of as neurotic, you know what I mean? Because of how I am, but I'm like, 
hell no, I'm like warrior, like with my daughter, like get the fuck away. Like this is the space around her and around us and like that, you know, and she's still little, right? She's nine. And so obviously I'm going to have to navigate different fields as she's growing older and individuates more and goes into the world. Um, but I'm very much like that because I'm very much aware of what the hell is going on around us all the time, you know, in all the different settings. So yeah, it's that balance of like, um, no, I'm not going to say it's the balance. My conversations with her, you know, up into this time in terms of age appropriateness, and I've always talked with her about this since she was born how do you feel in your body? Listen to how you feel in your body. Your body is never going to lie to you. How does your body feel? And so she'll straight up tell me now, like, you know, I'm not going there because that person does not feel good in my body. And even if it's someone that like I'm registering as okay, I'm going to listen to her and respect her because she has, you know, I want her to develop that way to navigate the world. Listen to your body. What does your body say with that person? My body doesn't feel good. Don't be nearest to that person, you know? And I mean, we homeschool and it's even that, you know, there, and we live pretty remotely. And so there's a couple different homeschool things she can do. You know, she has dance and we have a main lesson teacher who comes over and helps us out with that. And she has groups she meets up with, but there's a couple other things that have been available for her to participate in, like for homeschool community where we live. And she's like, and I think that it'd be great, right? And she was like, no way. She's like, I do not feel good with that person in my body. No way. And I'm like, okay. You know, like, I'm like, why don't you go? Because like, I could, I could use some more free time, <laughs> you know, and you could use some more um, child time and stuff. But she's like, no way. And she's super clear. And so I feel like that's a really easy way to support our young people is by telling them to listen to how they feel in their bodies so that it's an, an embodied response to the world, right? Because that's neuroception, right? Neuroception is, is our nervous system reading our environment to know when we're safe and when we're not. And, and to think about like if we can actually cultivate that in our children from an early age on, listen to what your body is reading in your environment you know, in this, in this animal part of us, not what our mind thinks, not trying to like justify or make logic. I don't know why I don't really feel good with that person. No, you just don't, you don't really need to know why you just don't, you know, and trust that inner wisdom. And that's an easy thing that we can do with our children from the time they're born. We don't need to like tell them about all the horrific things going on. Listen to your body and how do you feel? And then when they tell us how they feel that we respect that, that we don't then push them into doing something with our logical mind to justify it for X, Y, and Z reason, you know? Um, so that's what we do like at this stage in the game, you know, and clearly that's going to change, but yeah. we're really protective and it's using our body as our, as our high technology that it is the best navigational tool for being alive, you mm. know? That's so wise um, because, yeah, the, it's one of the hardest things is to figure out age appropriateness and the conversations you want to be having around all this. You don't want to terrify your young child. Totally. Um, but at some point, especially as they get older, it, it's time that they understand the culture they're living in and and what what's possible. And I love that yesterday, my three-year-old Nixie, uh, she was 
on my lap and I kissed her and she yelled, no. And I, my immediate reaction, I was like, I was like, okay, you can just say mommy, please don't. And then I was like, no, actually that's fine. (laughs) You can yell no. If I do something to your body that you don't like, (laughs) Mm I want to make sure to not, um, you know, to, to just let her be free in that. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, you know, I know there's like a lot going around about this now, but it's to me something that was intuitive from the time my daughter was born, but like, I don't force my daughter to hug anyone, you know, I don't force her to do anything like that. And, you know, sometimes that can, then we have to deal with the effects of that as parents, right? Like my husband's from Mexico and we went to Mexico. um, When was it last year? I think my daughter was like five and everyone's like, ah, and they're so excited and everyone wants to hug her, but she doesn't remember anybody, you know? And, and you know, what most people do within, within our family system, at least is like, they make the kids hug everyone. And I'm not going to do that because why would she want to hug these people? Yeah, it's her family, but like, she doesn't remember them. And after a while, if she feels good with them, then sure hug him if you want, but I'm not. And, you know, my husband's dad made this comment to me of like, when we were saying goodbye to them after our visit, he was like, uh, maybe next time you will be teaching her better behavior or something. And I'm like, it's not bad behavior. It's that I'm teaching her to respect herself, you know? And I think centering self-respect is goes against the grain of uh, our respective cultural lines and then the collective culture of like respecting other people, respecting authority, respecting all these external things first when everything that I'm working to cultivate is respecting our internal authority, you know, it's like the inner authority. If we can really all just come back to our inner authority as the navigating tool on this planet, we would really shift things. Yeah. Yeah. And then this idea of manners too, you know, I just read a piece that a mother, I think she has three or four kids and she was like on the subway and this guy was trying to talk to her daughter and her daughter was like not having it, you know? And so then the guy gets more and more aggressive and like, teach your daughter some manners. And she's like, no, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like she doesn't want to talk. She doesn't have to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And I, women our age, we've all been raised to accommodate and to please and to Mm -hmm. not respect and listen to ourselves. And that also is part of this like embedded pelvic trauma mm-hmm. yep absolutely um yeah you write that when women are correctly and optimally resourced whole communities thrive and the movement of reproductive justice and environmental justice are one in the same so mm-hmm. bringing this again out into this like bigger picture of how do we move forward and how do we heal and <laughs> optimally resource women i mean Mm-hmm. really like how how does a woman who is feeling isolated like like for me having my second child 10 years after the first at 35 all my friends are moms they're middle-aged moms with like grown kids taking care of their parents running their businesses or going to work and trying to make money and it was like I even had like less community then even though I had more friends because mm-hmm. people weren't available for me because of the way our culture is set up um, and yeah, the internet is something, but you know, mm-hmm. it's not totally. what we need. I mean, you know, I think about this like literally all day, every day. It's kind of like <laughs> what I do, <laughs> you know, like my internal landscape. And so like anything from the real practical, because I feel like it's always important to like be at the center, like what can we do now? And then the long term, you know, what, what, what can we do for the long term? And the real practical is like, 
my daughter, she's really into dance and she had a dance recital last week. And one of her dance teachers had a baby who's now five months old, you know, so she's there. She started teaching dance classes again and she's got her five month old baby strapped onto her. And I see her, I'm like, how are you? And I give her a hug. She's like, I'm tired. You know, I have a sinus infection and I'm seeing her do her thing. And she's like, Oh God, I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten yet today. It's 12 noon. Okay. And I'm like, what? And, and for me, I'm like the mother hen, you know? And so I'm like, what do I have? So I like go, I always have food in my bag. So I have like a bag of almonds, you know, and I had a thermos of tea. So I pour her a cup of tea and I give her a bag of almonds that I had. And she was like, oh my God. Oh, thank you. You know, it's like so life-saving. And the next day I made her, cause they had a whole bunch of dance stuff last week. I made her just this huge jar of this herbal chai tea that I made, you know, and brought it to her. And she was like, so grateful. It like makes me cry. Yeah, you know? I'm actually yeah. doing that too. Because she's like, so grateful. And I'm like, I'm so grateful that she's grateful. And it's so sad yeah. that she's so grateful for a jar of hot chai. Because it's like, everybody should be doing that, you know? And and we're it's like, we're acting so deficient. So what can we do on a practical level? I'm actually thinking I'm going to like make a post about this. Every mom should just carry extra food in your bag if you don't already. Like, it's just something that I've really kind of always done. Like, part of my lineage is gypsy, and I really can feel that in my blood. So I'm, like, always prepared. I'm like, what if I have to spend the night out somewhere? So I always got a change of clothes. I got food. I'm good for a couple days for me and my whole family, you know? And so always carry extra food. No, even if you're not a mom, if you're a human listening to this, always carry extra food in your bag because you might need a snack, you know? And when you see a mom who has a little baby, offer her food. Like we have to go out of our comfortability zones, you know, and, and do things that maybe we don't normally do because because moms are raising the freaking next generation, you know, and we really have to be able to like get into that understanding that if we are concerned about the health of the earth, if we are concerned about the children, then we have to take care of the moms. So like, that's just something that's really practical, carry food and give food to people that you see, you know, like really, because most mothers in this modern world like are running around doing 18 million things and no one's thought to give them food just bring food bring tea with you wherever you go and give it to postpartum moms you know or moms with little kids and then in the more like long term or I don't know that it's long term I don't know like the trajectory our our collective trajectory but I feel like it's really really freaking important that everybody gets focused at this time, focused in the sense of like, what are we here to do? If we're adults listening to this podcast, you know, like my adopted dad, he always used humor, you know, to, to tell people that they needed to do something, (laughs) you know? And so one time we were in a ceremony and people were kind of being some like woo woo way about things. And he was like, good morning, relatives, you know, and he said something, you know, thank you for being here and um, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, and I just want to let everybody know that in being here, you're now part of the God squad. And it was his way of saying, like, you're not just here to feel good and bliss out. You're here to do your work, you know. 
so focused and do your work. And so I feel like I have a really big charge right now for those of us who are adults on this planet at this time to do our flipping work. You know, we need to mature. We need to mature in our adulthood, understanding that our primary responsibilities as adults on this planet are to caretake life. And so whatever our expression of that is, because there's you know, a million different ways that that can be manifested is that we all get real about that and put our fire energy behind that which we feel moved by and do it. Like now is the time for us to do that, you know? And this part with revillaging and coming back into community way of life, you know, in this reckoning of of what we don't have right now that many of us perhaps would like to have. It's understanding that the people behind us, you know, we are really living out their dreams and prayers in a lot of ways now. So we're dreaming something new into the future. And so any work that we can put forward and towards the creation of, um, of a way of life that is life supporting and life nurturing. Even if we don't um, eat those fruits from those trees, we're doing it so that the ones in front of us can. And that none of it is in vain. You know, it's none of it is. And there's for sure like that grief to like, I might not actually live this. I might not actually even see this in my lifetime. We don't know, but it's to know that nothing we can do that's going to be um, in support of life is going to be in vain. And so for everyone to just own that, own that um, power and that responsibility in the creation of this new way of life that we're working to create. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing before you said it, like it's too late for me to have that supported postpartum experience. It's probably not even going to happen for, you know, the women who are giving birth right now or maybe 10 years from now. But we have to think on these larger time scales mm-hmm. and bringing it back to Charles Eisenstein again. I heard him say in another podcast that he's thinking in like 500 year time scales, like multi, multi, multi generational. We probably, who knows, I'm about the same age as you, but we're probably not going to, yeah, um, benefit from the fruits of the work that we are trying to bring forth. But maybe our children, our grandchildren, great great grandchildren. What it like? It's all the same. It's all it's us. It's all us. Like our mm-hmm. ancestors, our descendants. It's all one continuum. Mm-hmm. And another like practical way for me that that I can work and be in all this is to be in relationship with my well ancestors. And I like I feel them. I the mm-hmm. the main oh. thing I feel from them is like we are working through you to heal Mm -hmm. the descendants of all the lineages. Mm -hmm. And like, that is why you are embodied on the planet right now. And we are here resourcing you Mm -hmm. from the other side so that you can do this work. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like that's so important that like, we are all resourcing ourselves in that way, you know, because, well, because we're living in this time, right? We're, it's clear, right? We're talking about all those things that, that we're missing and that many of us acknowledge that are not how we want them to be. But it's like, where can we tap in um, at this time in reality as it is, right? So it's being resourced by who, by what? If we're not being resourced by the people, right? 
we think about it, I think about it like horizontally, like if we're not having that horizontal support show up in the way that we would like it to be, what are the other ways we can tap into to be resourced? And so it's being resourced from our well ancestors, being resourced from the place where we live. I mean, part of the reason that we live where we live is because I can be resourced by the land here, you know, in whatever way I'm not feeling um, filled up or I'm feeling um, grief or I'm feeling whatever, you know, in terms of how reality is at this time, I can be resourced by the land here. I can be resourced by the place that I live, you know? And so finding those ways to be resourced um, at this time, yeah, is so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just want to close with one final thought. This is taken from another one of your brilliant blog posts that you write, as mothers, the sacrifices we make each and every day for our children are our holy offerings to life itself. That's, that's what we're doing this work for. It's an offering to life. It's an offering to the ancestors. It's an offering to the descendants. And it's hard. It's so hard to be like embodied at this time. I think especially as a woman, especially as a mother, especially as people of color, especially. I mean, it's hard for everyone. It's hard for the white men too, you know. It's mm-hmm. like no one's stoked on what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like what what a gift to be able to call on what resources us and bring it forward as an offering of collective healing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so thank you so much for your work, Rochelle. I'm just so, so grateful. Um, I hope every, every woman, mother, parent can find your work and um, please like, you know, take whatever time you need to spell out for us exactly everything that you offer and like how people can go deeper with you. So my website is innatetraditions.com and I teach um, what's called innate postpartum care certification training. It's a training that I developed originally for birth and healthcare providers from around the world to take kind of as a secondary training. So nurses or chiropractors or midwives or doulas or massage therapists or mental health professionals or social workers to be able to receive an education that's rooted in the needs of postpartum women, understanding postpartum physiology and psychology. Okay. Because I know what I received in terms of my education as a midwife, almost nothing really in regards to the postpartum period. I know what's offered in medical school. It's almost nothing. There is no holistic education that's being offered through institutional lines of education for any healthcare providers at this time. So from that understanding, I really created this training so that people who are doing care providing work can have the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding, the tools to optimally resource postpartum mothers and families. So I teach in person. And when I teach in person, it's a seven day training. And I only really teach in person right now in New Mexico, out of Taos, New Mexico. I'm going to be teaching down in Mexico with some of our family there, perhaps in late 2020, if not the next year. But in-person trainings really happen in New Mexico. And then I teach online. I brought my class online for the first time about a year and a half ago now. 
Um, and it's been really amazing. I teach live, so it's not like pre-recorded videos. Like I'm on each call live. Each class is like two to three hours long and I do record them in case people can't make it live. And it's really amazing because it's birth and healthcare providers from around the planet um, doing really awesome work. And and I've found, you know, I didn't know because I hadn't really done that kind of work yet, but it we really do cultivate community even in this online forum. You know, I've like figured out how to do that. So it's a really beautiful, it's a really beautiful gathering. Like I love it and feel like a heart connection with everyone who participates there. And then sometimes I get the random email message from someone and it's like, you know, I'm not a healthcare provider yet, but I really want to do this training. And is that okay? Or are you open to that? Or what do you have to say about that? And what I have to say is that really like the, what I teach is really not just a postpartum care training. It's it's a training in understanding how maternal health is foundational to humanity's health. And really the the training, the experience of it is for anybody who's committed to thriving life on earth. So anybody who feels big fire of like um, protecting and caretaking life through the avenue of maternal health, like you can absolutely take the class. Mm, that's beautifully said. Um, and you also, every now and then, I'm looking at the events page mm. on your website, do free online classes. Like you totally. recently taught cultivating health and resiliency in our young children, mm-hmm. um, ancestral grief and ancestral healing. So yeah, I just, you know, mm-hmm. um, encourage people, they can follow you on Instagram at innate traditions and also sign up for your newsletter through the website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm like this, I wanted. I wish I knew about that. <laughs> totally. And there's a free booklet you can sign up for through my website, um, and you download it, the free booklet, and then it also opts you into the newsletter, and then you'll know like when I'm teaching the free classes. I usually do, I'd say like two to three free classes a year, and they're really awesome and dynamic. Like that last class, cultivating health and resiliency. And our young children had like 1,500 people wow. sign up. Wow. So yeah. Yeah, and um, the download booklet is so good. Like, I, I thought I knew things about postpartum, and I learned so much from that. So, yeah, anyone who's pregnant, you know anyone who's pregnant or is postpartum. Also, let's really quick define postpartum. Mm-hmm, totally. So postpartum, again, is a period of time, and it's a time after we carry a pregnancy. So it doesn't matter if the pregnancy ends as a live birth or if the pregnancy ends as a stillbirth, that means the baby's not alive at birth. It doesn't matter if the pregnancy ends as a miscarriage, and it doesn't matter if the pregnancy itself ends as an abortion. Any time after any one of those experiences, a woman is in her postpartum time. It's a period of time. And there's no, you know, we could say that it's six weeks. Okay, sure. Like, we can say it takes the uterus about six weeks to, you know, involute to go back to a pre-pregnant size after carrying a pregnancy. Um, but then, you know, in Ayurvedic tradition, it would say it takes about three years for a woman's body to go back to like a pre-pregnant way of functioning after the child's born. And we're also postpartum for life. You know, it's like once we have a child, it's not like we're ever going to be who we were before. So there's not like some way that we can define that, you know, I mean, it's, it's however we want to define it for ourselves, really. It's just a period of time after carrying a pregnancy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks so much, Rochelle. 
Totally. Oh, I thought of one more thing to share with everybody. Yeah. The last thing is so that everybody, like I, I think I mentioned this, everybody who like does certification with me, they go on to teach this community education series in their respective geographical place. So now this community education series is being taught all around the planet. And it's there's four classes that are taught prenatally. So in the same way that people go to childbirth education series, this is you go to be informed about the postpartum time to understand basic precepts about um, the postpartum period and what kind of care to set up for yourself. And then together you make a postpartum care plan, like to meet the needs of your family. So four classes happen prenatally. And then the fifth class of that class series that happens like in people's respective communities, it happens when everybody is through their early postpartum time. So once everybody who was in that class is past the first six weeks postpartum and everyone's brought back together. And the reason that we do it like that is because to complete a rite of passage, we need community witnessing and community acknowledgement. And when we don't have witnessing and acknowledgement, we have a passage, but not a rite of passage. And it's very disorienting for us as humans. So everybody comes back together after the early postpartum time for community witnessing and celebration and honoring. And everybody who teaches that class does it in their own way to meet the needs of their respective community. Mm. Um, I want to add one small thing too, just because I feel like it would be random if I put this in the intro, which is around bringing food. Of course, I always bring food too as a mom in my bag. Um, But something that I read years ago was like just to have a small basket that you keep in your trunk in your car with food because you don't always want to like add more things to your heavy mom bag or whatever, you know, and then pretty much anywhere you're going to go unless you're like hiking, you're going to be near your car. And Mm -hmm. if, you know, someone needs food or you need food, you can have like more variety. And I just, I think that's a really good idea. Totally. I love it. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Rochelle. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there. And I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. 
The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.